welcome to the IOD's Director's Briefing Podcast. This podcast is produced by the IOD's Policy Unit and provides timely updates, insights and commentary on the key issues of the day impacting business leaders. Good morning, everybody. My name is Catherine McWilliam and I am Nations Director for Scotland with the IOD. I'm really pleased to welcome you today to the latest in our Meet the Politicians podcast series, where we speak to political leaders who are active in the world of business policy and find out more about their backgrounds, their objectives and their policy priorities. In this podcast, it is my pleasure to welcome Richard Thompson MP, who as well as being Member of Parliament for Gordon in Aberdeenshire, is Shadow SNP Spokesperson for Business and Trade. Prior to becoming an MP, Richard has served as a local councillor for the Ellen and District Ward and co-leader of Aberdeenshire Council. Welcome, Richard. It is a pleasure to have you join us today. Great to be with you. So, Richard, your background and career prior to becoming an MP in 2019 is a fascinating one. From the financial sector to journalism and leading Aberdeenshire Council, can you tell us a bit about your background and what IOD members should know about your career journey? Well, um, I've never heard it described as fascinating before. It's certainly um, varied, and I've certainly never um, found it dull for, for too long. Um, I, I went off to university uh, after high school, um, first of my family to, to, to do so. And I went to Stirling University with the intention of uh, studying economics and French. But thanks to the, the flexibility of uh, the Scottish tertiary education sector, I was able to emerge four years later with a, a degree instead in history and politics. But, you know, the, the economic side of things fascinated me, but it wasn't what I wanted at that stage to pursue a, a qualification. And so I did what was probably the most natural thing that you would do with a history degree and um, went off and worked as a temp from the Bank of Scotland for a few months after <laughs> after graduation, um, where you know, I was kind of working in the shares registrar's department uh, uh, down at uh, Paddington Place in Edinburgh. And um, it was taken over by Lloyd's TSB. Um, but I'd been looking for, you know, a full-time job where I had a bit more security. Because uh, the, the temping stuff, even though it was a long-term thing that the Bank of Scotland were doing, it was week to week. And I was looking to get myself established you know, in my personal life, getting a house and that. So I got offered a job at uh, Scottish Widows, um, working in uh, their the quality assurance department of what might be better known as the, the complaints department at the, at the time. And then a few months later, they were also taken over by Lloyd's TSB. So I thought that you know, for about you know, £7 billion, pounds, I thought if uh, Lloyd's TSB were clearly that desperate to have me in the payroll, it would be churlish not to stick around for a few years. So um, I found that I, I quite enjoyed working in the, the complaints department. And let me see the very best of it. Uh, that of Scottish widows, but also, you know, sometimes things had gone wrong. And what I found out was I really actually quite enjoyed developing the institutional knowledge and tapping into the expertise of you know, people that had been there for, for years. So that uh, by the time I, I, I left that role, I'd, I'd like to think I had a pretty good understanding of how the customer services side of things worked, how some of the investment side worked. So I was able to deal with pretty much most of the things that were likely to come across my desk and also able to help solve most of the problems or resolve as best we could problems that the customers came with. And I, I really enjoyed that challenge. Um, I was a bit, I did get a bit frustrated with that. And I ended up taking a sideways move to become a, an account manager in the corporate pensions department. And 
Um, so I, I, I did that for a while, and it was good to develop interpersonal skills in an environment where you weren't dealing with um, complaints all the time, and you know you were able to develop kind of positive, ongoing relationships like that with some pretty big players. But uh, I, I eventually, you know, I kind of decided that I, I wanted to move on in a way that wasn't obvious I was going to be able to move on. You know, I wanted to move up and start developing managerial skills. I'd started taking an MBA at the Edinburgh Business School. And I was feeling rightly or wrongly that just the, the pathway was a bit constrained for me. Um, throughout this time, I'd been involved in politics uh, and was a member of the SNP. And I'd been involved, you know, at branch level. I'd stood for the council in Edinburgh. But there was an opportunity came up to when the party was looking for a head of campaigns uh, in the lead up to what was what became the 2005 election. So I applied for that, and um, a little to my surprise, I was appointed to that, and that allowed me. I would like to see the flourish of it because I went from being in this very very big, quite siloed in some respects, organisation and department to basically being somebody who could, you know, do. Had to, had to basically do anything that came across their desk, no matter it was, you know, whether it was making sure public events happened or whether it was scheduling things or doing some of the project management around about the election or basically just making sure that things worked so that people could go out and campaign as they liked. So that was a, a useful coming together of, you know, idealism and skills and knowledge built up to that point. And, uh, but after that, um, partly to say that we didn't need a head of the campaign unit anymore. Um, it was quite a constrained organisation in terms of resources, but I was I landed on my feet and one of the members of parliament that we got the SNP had elected in 2005, Stuart Posey, very kindly offered me a job. Um, so I ended up working in Dundee with Stuart and with uh, Shona Robison, who was the MSP for the uh, the, the, the equivalency and now, of course, Deputy First Minister. So I was ending up covering, uh, doing research and everything from for Stuart across the economy and Treasury brief that he held as well. It was the health brief for Shona as she was a shadow health minister. So I did that uh, working across Westminster and Holyrood, which was fascinating. Uh, environment to be in. In the lead up to 2007, where the SNP formed a, a minority administration. So, you know, I played my my, my small part in that. Um, it became obvious, you know, I, there were people who were being appointed to be special advisors. I wasn't one of them. And I, but by that time, I decided I would quite like a crack at standing for Westminster. Um, I was the only Westminster researcher the SNP had that wasn't based there, so I went down to Westminster. Um, I'd no sooner got my brown cardboard boxes unpacked and Gordon Brown became the Prime Minister and threatened to call an election, so I'd no sooner got unpacked and I had to get myself back up the road. And um, One thing led to another. I got selected with Gordon uh, in the North East of Scotland, where I now represent. Um, very interesting seat at that time, of course, because Alex Salmond had just won the equivalent uh, Holyrood seat, uh, helping him on his way to being First Minister. Um, so I was head of research for the SNP down at Westminster for about a year. Again, it was fascinating seeing the kind of dog days of the, the Brown Labour government and seeing power sap away there. Um, and, uh, you know, I worked, I eventually I moved up to the North East, worked with Alex Salmond for a, a year or so until the 2010 election. Um, that came to an end. I decided I wanted a break from politics because I'd been that was a bit of a five or a six year ride I'd been on. Um, so I did a little bit working for a local PR agency for a while on a kind of a temporary basis, and then got to do something I'd always wanted to do professionally, which was be a journalist. I'd been writing for the Scots Independent journal newspaper for a number of years, doing columns, and I think I've it's possibly the job I've had where I've had the most fun 
uh, you know, just being a, a local reporter and reflecting the best of the community back to itself. But another year passed, um, had a, a wee one on the way, myself and my, my partner at the time, with a, a baby girl on the way, and um, local journalism is many things, but well paid it isn't. So I needed to do something else that gave me a bit more flexibility, and I was asked to put my name forward to stand for the council. I did, I got elected, and I uh, was on a bit of a learning curve there. Um, I was served in the scrutiny committee, which I found fascinating. I was the vice chair of that. And then, much to my surprise, after three years, I found myself in a joint leadership position in the council, which um, uh, is, I think, possibly still the most rewarding job I've ever had, whether in or out of politics. Um, after that, you know, political events took their turns. I ended up leading the opposition rather than leading the council. And then we had the election that uh, I didn't to, to, to get to Westminster. So it's been quite varied. It's been quite unpredictable. But um, I've seldom been bored. And um, I'd like to think I've picked up quite a bit about, uh, you know, how organisations work, how they don't work, how public policy works or sometimes doesn't work. And um, I would like to be able, you know, Whatever the next election brings, I'd like to think I'd be able to bring some of that to bear in uh, in another role. Because basically, looking at it, just throwing it down, every role I've ever had has been about trying to solve problems for people and uh, communication. And I, I'd like to think I've kind of, but if I've got anything about me, it's probably uh, in 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 those areas. And uh, I'd like to keep continuing using those uh, as the MP in that area for as long as I can. But uh, every political career is a sell by date, and. Uh, but I can't imagine doing something that doesn't involve those uh, using that experience in some way in the future. I, I think fascinating is absolutely the right word. That was re really interesting. Um, and I suppose that that link to, you know, through the journalism and working for your local paper, that, that deep connection to your local community must be really helpful now in, in the role that you're you're currently doing. I, I, I find it so, um, because, again, that 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 role as a journalist, I always had to rein in my politics because I've been you know, a parliamentary candidate there, you know, not so long before. So if I showed the slightest hint of political bias, everyone would have said, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? And I, I, I remember one occasion where I was getting berated by some of my local SNP now colleagues who were, uh, or, or then colleagues rather, you know, why did you write that? You know, I think it was a press release that I lived the MSP had put out and said, well, I wrote it because one, she said it, and two, it happened to be true. Um, you know, um, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not here to do, you know, to, to push your side of the story exclusively. I'm here to report on what is generally happening, and she's got you bang to rights in this particular issue. Um, but yeah, having those connections, having those conversations, having those contacts, I think is. Um, vitally important and I'll be quite honest you know having that kind of visibility that I, I had through that it meant that you know my and also having stood before it meant that when I stood again in 2019 I, I wasn't exactly an unknown quantity and an awful lot of people had had dealings with me whether in politics or out of politics and for better or worse were able to form a judgment on what they thought they were getting and um I'd like to think that was hopefully a reasonably good judgment and that I've uh, done nothing since then to disabuse anyone of that, uh, of that sentiment. Thank you, thank you. So as, as well as being MP for Gordon, you are also Shadow SNP Spokesperson for Business and Trade. Can you tell us a wee bit more about what that looks like and what it is that you are responsible for? Well, much of that is... Uh, reactive to the business that goes on in the, the, the House of Commons, because I think that any, you know, Scottish MP has a, 
a number, I mean, certainly I'll give you the perspective from an SNP MP since that's what I am, but there's a number of core functions that you have. You're obviously there to represent your constituents, uh, but you're there to hold ministers to account, you're there to scrutinise legislation, and you're also there to make a case for why the powers that are currently reserved to Westminster would be better exercised from a, an independent parliament in Scotland. But in terms specifically of the business and trade rules, it means covering the uh, the these business questions. Uh, so I'm frequently, you know, up against Kemi Badenoch and her ministerial team uh, over trade. Um, I think it's fair to say there's not really much of a meeting of minds goes on there at the moment, you know, with the, the trade deals that have been uh, signed hitherto post-Brexit. Um, but also it means that when there's debates or statements in these areas, I'll often get pulled in to respond for and on behalf of the the SNP. So there's a reactive element, but what I also try to do is to get out and understand some of the issues that are there. Now, I've got quite a full plate in front of me because I'm also the SNP spokesperson in Wales and Northern Ireland. And the Northern Ireland brief is one, I find the Welsh brief fascinating, but particularly over the last, you know, year and a half, two years, the Northern Ireland brief has been absolutely fascinating. And I'm a fairly frequent visitor over there because I think it's so important that we understand what's going on there because a peaceful, prosperous Northern Ireland at ease with itself is in manifestly everyone's interest. And also, most of the ley lines, if I can put it like that, of the Brexit debate have for Scotland have run through Northern Ireland as well in terms of what kind of Brexit are we going to get? Will there be a sanitary and phytosanitary deal? What are the trade Friction's going to look like because my philosophy throughout this has been that whether Scotland's in the Union or out of the Union, the fewer trade barriers that we have between all parts of the islands that make up the the, the UK, and the fewer trade frictions that we have with Europe in the process, uh, frankly, the the better. So I've I was already kind of involved in the, the, the kind of trade discussions there. So there is that reactive bit. Um, there's more to do being on the front foot. Um, obviously, you know we have you know the economy minister Neil Gray in uh, in Edinburgh, who um, is a former colleague at Westminster. He's one of the he he made the, the leap from one parliament to the other and. Um, seems to be thriving. You know, I've got a lot of respect for Neil. He was actually the, the guy who took me through my first bill committee when we, we, we sat together on the on the pensions bill, seeing that through all the stages uh, two or three years ago. So there's that kind of interface with colleagues at Hollywood, and there's, you know, trying to make some of the arguments that the Scottish Government would wish to see made, trying to make them to ministers in Westminster, because obviously so much of those two briefs is still currently reserved. Uh, but the, 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 I would say that the biggest part of it is the day-to-day -day reactive stuff, which comes up in terms of the, uh, of the, uh, the, the holding to account of the scrutiny of legislation. And also, because being London-based, it's quite easy for me to make time in my diary to meet uh, people who are passing through London or to meet with organisations that are down here to take the temperature and see what they're thinking and uh, to try and uh, take those arguments forward as best I can where they're, they're compatible with uh, our broader aims and objectives for, uh, for, for business in Scotland. Brilliant. Thank you very much. That's really insightful. And, and I take the point you make about Neil Gray. We, we've recently worked with, with Mr Gray on the New Deal for Business Group, which has been a really positive piece of work. And the report for that was published last Thursday. So we look forward to engaging in the, the delivery of those recommendations. Keeping on the, the, the track of UK business, I wondered if you could give us a bit more on your vision for the future of UK business and what you would assess our current strengths and weaknesses to be. 
Oh, I think generally, in, in terms of strength, we're part of the, the Anglosphere. We're speaking the, 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 the language of business. Um, there's tremendous soft power at a UK level, also at a Scottish level. You know, we're soft power, superpowers in our, in our own way. There's tremendous, despite all the political upheaval in the last few years, there's tremendous interest, there's tremendous affection there for you know, the various peoples of the, the, the British Isles. I think it's we've got an we've got an economy which is um, strong in innovation. Um, not quite so good that uh, you know, we've got a very very strong <clears throat> academic tertiary sector. Not so good. I don't get the feeling that uh, being able to capitalise on some of the spin-outs and commercialising, uh, we're, we're very good at talking a good game around about renewables and the hydrogen economy, we're not nearly so good at bringing that to market. You can see much smaller countries like Denmark and uh, with wind and Norway with hydrogen who are stealing a march and are still actually doing while we're still talking in many respects. And... You know, I think I find that uh, you know a bit a bit disheartening when we've got so many natural advantages there. Um, so I think we've got strength in that that human capital. Weaknesses, I think, shutting ourselves off, as I would see it from our biggest market in Europe, throwing up trade barriers, <clears throat> ending freedom of movement. I think that's deprived us not just of a a, a good quality workforce, it's also deprived of, of uh, some people who come in to be innovators, people with get up and go who got up and went, are now getting up and going elsewhere other than Scotland and the UK, and I think that that is um, something to be greatly regretted um, because that, I think, you know, is a, a real source of, of, of potential and vitality, socially, economically, culturally, which is a driver for much of uh, much of our our, our growth, I would contend, and, and you know, often in quite intangible ways. But with you, you notice it when it's when it's when it's absent. Uh, I think one of the other things that's holding us back at the moment is uh, R&D spend. Now, there's various wheezes that even the, the last three Conservative governments in this term have come up with in terms of how to try and stimulate R&D. But there is still an enormous bias towards the amount they get spent in London in the southeast. And that's leading to massive regional imbalances, which is not good for anywhere. I mean Scotland's doing pretty well. Um Scotland, despite it, tends to do pretty well because we've got that kind of political economic pull and also we've got I think you know we're at a, enough of a distance that we're not not everything can get sucked into London and the southeast. We've got other things in our favour, like an excellent quality of life. Despite what anybody says, we've got excellent public services that sustain a good quality of life. We've got a high quality environment. You know, it's a you know it's it's a it's a great place to live, work, and play, and that helps us enormously. It helps us attract you know, the highest levels of FDI outside London and the southeast. But there's other parts of the UK, like Wales, which are really you know, are, are simply not getting that same level of uh, R&D spend. And I'm not persuaded that the UK government is doing anything that's really going to shift the dial or, or, or is doing anything that's shifting the dial on that. So I think that R&D spend, it drags behind our major European competitors like France and Germany. And that which is spent here uh, tends to be predominantly biased towards London and the South East, and that exacerbates existing regional intergenerational inequalities. And, you know, that's something that really does need to be tackled. And for all that we hear language about levelling up, um, it, 
it's not even touching the sides of, of of that. You know, getting you know ten million pounds to build a new roundabout, or putting a few new bus shelters somewhere, or to plant a few trees—that's lovely, but it's not going to shift the dial. Uh, so I think you know, until and unless there's a fundamental uh, change in outlook, and that nobody can ever, as Boris Johnson once did, stand up and say a pound spent in Croydon is worth more than a pound spent in Strathclyde, but which he means downside. Um, east side, Tyne side, you know, Severn side, you know, the UK government needs to get out of that that mentality. And of course, that's one of the, the major drivers to further empower the, the Scottish Parliament and give it all the all the powers of a, a sovereign country from, from my own perspective to help try and challenge that and uh, establish us in as firm a fitting as we possibly can. We're in control of all the levers of uh, public policy and public finance instead of uh, kind of being buffeted by decisions taken uh, some distance away. That's a really interesting point you make as well about particularly renewables and the hydrogen economy. Your your constituents up in Aberdeenshire, I'm sure, will be very well tapped into that. And I know it's an area that our our members in Scotland are are, are watching um, in the in the northeast. I, you've touched upon this throughout our conversation so far, but I just wondered if we could specifically look at the relationship you have as an SNP MP at Westminster with the SNP Scottish Government. Presumably, you work very closely together, but it would be great just to flesh that out in a bit more detail. Yeah, I mean. I don't interfere in the business of government. That's clear. You know, there is a clear demarcation there, and it, it wouldn't be appropriate for, for that to be the case. But there are open lines of communication. And it, it's quite interesting to reflect on the relationship that there is between, I think, SNP MPs and an SNP-led Scottish government. And how it was when Labour were in power, you know, it was a Labour-led Scottish executive at the time with Lib Dem ministers in it, and as part of the coalition and there was a lot of Labour MPs in Scotland, and there was quite a lot of tension between the group. I think because you know Labour MPs were at the time were you know found it quite difficult to let go. They they were in Westminster, they were the the masters, and here was this upstart, you know, grown overgrown council suddenly you know doing things that they'd always considered you know they were they were in charge of. So we don't have that dynamic at all. Um, and I think that uh, you know there's a, a role there for SNP MPs to play, as I say, you know, scrutinising minister, holding ministers to account, scrutinising legislations. But you want to work as closely as possible, not to be a mouthpiece, but also you've got a set of antennae down here that you're you're picking up what's happening in policy terms, and you want to be able to feed that back. And the most productive relationships I've had, uh, because we've got people who speak across all different areas of, for example, international relations and the economy, and I, I don't have sight of some of the other areas, but I know this also goes on, is that we have pretty regular discussions so that we can say what's going on in Westminster to tell that to ministers and their um, uh, and their, their political staff. Uh, and, you know, ministers can also tell us, you know, in an in appropriate and proper way, you know, what's coming up, what's going down the line. So we do get that kind of dialogue so that we're not operating, you know, solely through the, the prism of, of advisors, you know, there's that sort of regular contact that, that, that goes on on there. But you know, we want to be able to. Um, there's, you know, this, I'm sure this will shock and stun you, but you know, there's quite often a, a lot of disinformation gets put out about what's actually happening in Scotland and the, the UK Parliament. And although the SNP is the third largest party, you know, we obviously have a partiality mm. as well to, to bring to bear on that. But we don't 
you know, it's it's sometimes quite difficult to counter that because although we're the third party, that still means we're the third party. And although we've got an enhanced role compared to how it was previously, um, it still goes across the chamber, Labour Tory, Labour Tory, Labour Tory, a few times before you'll get one of our people coming in unless it's the front bench uh, spokesperson. So we, we try and, you know, make sure that uh, we're adding some balance to that, or you know, a fairer balance, or a fairer balance to, to that debate. But I think where, where where the relationship really succeeds is where we do have those regular conversations and building up those personal relationships to the extent that everybody kind of knows what everyone else is doing, that nobody's going to do or say anything that blindsides people. But, but fundamentally, it's about building and maintaining and replenishing the, the personal relationships that are there because. You know, there was a time, and I've been in the SNP nearly 30 years, when you could turn up at a party meeting, even a national party meeting, and you could probably know most of the people who were in the room. Now, the party has grown considerably since then, and, not, uh, and you know, in, in, certainly in terms of elected representation as well as its membership. And there's often people who, you, you know, there are people who have been elected who won't necessarily have, you know, met each other, you know, in, in, in years past. So for finding, you know, having those positive relationships and having talks, even if it is over uh, Zoom, I mean, certainly the pandemic made it easier for us to do an awful lot of that sort of thing. Uh, but building those relationships and having those discussions and exchanging those ideas is uh, pretty crucial. And that's what happens. And certainly, you know, um, I've always been very impressed. You know, when Kate Forbes was the finance minister, she was very uh, committed to having these regular conversations with us. I know that Neil Gray does the same, um, we, and we do it across the international briefs as well. And I know that it happens outside the areas that I am responsible for. So I suppose I'm maybe starting to go into the circle here a bit, but it's about you know having the personal relationships, having that flow of information about what's going on, and uh, making sure that, broadly speaking, um, uh, we're, we're contributing into each other's positions and uh, from the same hymn sheet. Dialogue, relationships and trust were my key takeaways from that there. Uh, yes, absolutely. And I should have just said that because I could have done it in five seconds. <laughs> um, thinking now about some of the specific issues that IOD members feed back to us, the, the, the top three issues for government at this current time are inflation, growth or, or the lack of it, and the UK's relationship with the EU. How would the SNP address each of these issues? EU one is simple. We want back in. Um, we want Scotland to be back in as an independent uh, sovereign state there. But, you know, the best relation, the best position would be for all parts of the UK, whether Scotland's independent or not, for all parts of the UK to be back there in the, sing in the single market with positive relations with the EU, preferably you know, from my perspective, within the, the EU. So, but, you know, there are there are steps to that potentially. And one of the things that would be most important, particularly for the agriculture and food sector, is to have uh, alignment on sanitary and phytosanitary checks so that your uh, standards, um, our standards haven't diminished. It's just that we're no longer promising to uphold them and uh, we're signing trade deals uh, which threaten to kind of undercut that. So I think, you know, that for that, having that regulatory alignment, because basically you're, we're in a world where there's three regulatory zones that matter across most things. There's the US, there's the, EU, there's the EU, and then there's going to be China. And the UK being out on its own there isn't, isn't, going, to, isn't going to be a thing. 
frankly. So, you know, we, we need to be uh, as closely aligned as we can be with those who share our objectives and values socially, economically, culturally. That's why, you know, it's an existential choice for me that, you know, we need to be back in the European Union or as close to it as the politics will allow in any given set of circumstances. Growth and inflation, I think, are, are, are linked. And we, we hear a common refrain that um, there's global headwinds. Everybody's suffering from that as well. There's one economy that seems to be suffering more than most competitive European economies for low growth and uh, high inflation, and that's the UK. And I think Brexit is a big part of that. Uh, also, the, the disastrous um, Liz Trust uh, quasi-quarting budget, I think, you know, knocked confidence in the UK as a place where there was political stability and where there were, uh, where the, the where grown-ups were, were coming back to, to to be in charge after the the, the, the turmoil of the of the the, the, the last few months or the, the last few years of the Johnson administration and and, and Brexit and Theresa May before them. So I think that is that knocked confidence a lot. Um, in terms of how you tackle that, I think energy prices are the key determinant at the moment and are one of the key determinants that you can actually control. Uh, obviously, if we can remove trade frictions, that would help enormously in terms of ensuring that there is a bit bigger, a greater supply of goods able to come here at lower cost. If we uh, remove um, restrictions on freedom of movement, again, that would help enormously with uh, with uh, meeting labour gaps in the labour market. Um, that would, again, uh, help to ease inflation. It would help to drive innovations, as I said before. But I think, for me, one of the key elements is energy costs, because that's feeding through to the cost of fertiliser, to the cost of food, to the cost of transport, to the cost of packaging, to the, what people have to spend every month heating their homes and cooking food. It's affecting absolutely everything uh, and the cost of, you know, the cost of doing just about everything and moving things about. And, you know, I think that uh, there's a, the short-term solutions, you can throw money at it, as the government's done. Um, the government will want to give themselves an A-plus in the report card for that. I'm not so sure. I don't think that they've done nearly enough to help the those on the, on the lowest incomes there. But the way to lock in low energy prices for the future is to really start accelerating the drive through renewables, because that gives you your energy security. Um, and it also means that we already know that the, the unit cost of, uh, you know, even floating offshore wind that's comparable, it'll be, the cost curve is a long way to go. It's going to end up manifestly cheaper than any conceivable iteration of nuclear power. And we're on about the third or fourth generation of that technology. It's yet to wash its face commercially. Um, so, you know, going for renewables in a big way is what's going to give us the benefits of energy security in a, a turbulent world, as well as uh, locking in those uh, lower prices for the future, as well as if we get it right, uh, you know, securing uh, manufacturing jobs and also the, you know, the, the intellectual leadership through our, our universities and our industries for that. So I think there's a, so a few short, medium and long term things there. But the first thing is to remember, you know, that the old doctors at the age of first do no harm. And we've, we've done enormous, we've had enormous harm done to us not just by leaving the European Union, but by the manner in which it happened. It did not need to be as much of a cliff edge as the successive UK governments have made it. And as I say, I think choking off a supply of uh, labour from Europe, as well as making it harder to export and in some ways import and putting ourselves at the end of a more complicated uh, supply chain, I don't think has been remotely helpful and is simply making a bad situation there. Uh, 
even even worse for us. So uh, I think there's probably there's a few things in there that uh, ideally I would like to to see happen. But uh, fundamentally, we need to start tackling locking lower energy prices for the future to give people stability. We need to be decarbonising industry, decarbonising transport, decarbonising homes to deal with a broader environmental crisis that we know we're, we're staring down the, the barrel of. And by doing the right things in those areas in the right way on a, an accelerated timescale, uh, I think we can uh, start to build the, the foundations for a, a prosperity for the for the future. Because although we're in Scotland, we're blessed with a lot of natural resources, we're blessed with a great deal high, we're blessed with exceptional human capital. Nobody in the world owes us a living and we're going to have to keep continually innovating uh, in order to earn the social democracy, the quality of public services, the quality of life that we wish to maintain into the into the future. But a key part for me is actually being in control with the policy levers that determine all of those things. And right now, uh, that is in London. And uh, for all that I can uh, have a voice in that debate and perhaps have an influence on the, the periphery, um, I'd much rather be seeing those decisions being taken for us uh, in, a, in a, a sovereign Scottish Parliament where you're able to engage and pool your sovereignty with international partners because when you you pool your sovereignty, you can enhance it in that respect. Um, it's not something that you give away for somebody else to get, which uh, seems to be the philosophy that has uh, sadly um, distorted much of the debate that we've had around Brexit. Um, nation states are simultaneously too large and, and too small. As I heard George read uh, very presciently say in a, a lecture nearly 25 years ago when I first got involved in the, the SNP. And uh, I think that... Uh, Removing ourselves from those kind of supranational decision-making bodies like the EU um, does not make our job any easier in terms of achieving our domestic goals, but also in terms of being the kind of international thought leaders that uh, I think we would, uh, we would all wish to be. Thank you very much for that. Your answer there segued really neatly, and neatly sorry, into my next question. How would the SNP help SMEs specifically in their efforts to decarbonise and achieve net zero? When you look at the magnitude of green subsidies being offered by major competitors, is that not a concern for the UK? Yes, and I suppose the, the only answer to this, and I hope it's not too much of a cop-out, is that there's many different answers potentially, and it's the, the key element to this is, is a dialogue, because there's not going to be any one programme that is going to be right for every SME, you know, some SMEs might be very energy intensive, in which case some of the solutions might come quite obviously. There might be others that aren't, that isn't quite so obvious. So, you know, I think that uh, it's, uh, there's a wider dialogue has to be had about what's important to each business. Because, I mean, I was having a, a discussion with uh, the other the other night uh, with uh, a large um, distilling company that operates globally. I won't say who they who they were, but um, if they're listening to this, they'll they'll know who they'll know who they were, who they are. Um, and again, one of their pleas was, uh, you know, don't do things to us, do things with us. You know, if you've got these particular objectives in terms of you know, environmental objectives to take the, the point you've given, don't just you might have an objective in mind, but don't be prescriptive necessarily about how to get there because there's often so many moving parts. And particularly for companies that are operating globally, um, there might be better ways that they can identify to achieve the same sorts of outcomes without being 
disruptive. I think, well, I think that broader principle, although SMEs may not be operating on such such a, a large scale or an international scale, I think the same principle broadly holds true. That whatever schemes you come up with, you know, in terms of tackling you know environmental issues, uh, you want to be able to do it in such a way that it helps people to become more efficient, that it helps to reduce costs, so that it helps to reduce people to be more competitive, that it helps reduce uh, carbon emissions. And a lot of these things can mesh neatly, but uh, fundamentally, it's the people who are running the businesses that will have the best answers to that. Now, I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here back to my days at Aberdeenshire Council, and I had the the misfortune of being the council co-leader when uh, there was a business rates revaluation went through, and, you know, that hadn't been one for seven years. And, of course, when new bills uh, were, were mooted, then lots of people weren't terribly happy about that. Uh, and I was the council leader. You know, Aberdeenshire introduced the one and only rates relief scheme for the north of, you know, for anywhere in Scotland. Um, if you had a property below a rate of value below, I think it was £120,000. So we eliminated 50% of the increase for you to give you know, small businesses more chance to adapt to that. But while I was digging into, you know, learning more about how business rates work, I was really quite surprised to find that, you know, how much uh, your liability could increase simply by improving premises. Now, if you took two sheds side by side, and let's, for example, say Fraserburgh Harbour, one of them's processing fish, the other one is uh, something to do, you know, an engineering firm. Now, the engineering firm might have a much higher profit margin than the fish processors, but in order to do the fish processing, you've got to invest in uh, insulation to reduce your energy costs to keep the product as, in as premium condition as you can. But if somebody was going around, if the assessor was going around, they would look at the, the shed with the engineering work going on and say, right, that's just a common garden shed. It goes next door to the less profitable business and say, oh, right, you've put some refrigeration equipment in here and you've also insulated it. Right, that's another 10 or 20 percent on top of your bill because your building's now worth more. And that seemed to me to be counterintuitive. And I think that uh, if, I think most people don't like business rates. There's very little consensus about what can replace them. Um, um, it's part of, the way I've always encouraged people to look at is as part of a basket of taxation. I think you can any tax system that's got too many incentives and disincentives can become overly complex. But I think we have to look out for some of the disincentives there. And um, I think that you know there's potentially one that if you're in inadvertently increasing the value of your property by insulating it, it's you've got to make sure that. For all that that might you might have increased it, that you're not being unduly penalised uh, uh, before the the pay and extending the payoff period there, because you know this is a race against time environmentally. We're also looking to bring inflation down, reducing energy costs, reducing environmental impact, boosting competitiveness. Um, so you know, and it's only by having that sort of level of boring into detail or having the dialogue that you get to actually find these things out, because you know an awful lot of the time what crosses policymakers' desks is of necessity, fairly simple, broad brush stuff. And uh, I think that uh, having that dialogue with business and finding out, you know, what's working, what isn't, and, you know, what would make the biggest difference, uh, that's, the, that's the job of any, any business minister, I would say, in any government. I mean, I, I completely agree, and that absolutely echoes the sentiments of our members. Is that you know, work work with us. Don't don't tell us what you're doing. Ask us and and listen to our feedback. So, um, completely agree with that point. 
This really brings me to my final question for you, Richard. Um, the IOD, of course, is a polit politically neutral organisation and we are committed to working closely with all of the political parties to amplify the voice of our members. What would you say is the most constructive way for the SNP Westminster Group and the IOD to work together? I would say much as your members say, you know, talk to us and do things with us. It's exactly the same in, in reverse. Um, you know, we, we always want to have access to good information. We want good relationships. We want good dialogue. We want, you know, it's an incredible amount of detail crosses our desks and comes through our inbox every day. We can't always absorb everything that comes in. You know, we have staff to help us. But there is a bit of a, there is a danger sometimes of a bit of snow blindness about uh, things. I mean, I'm currently um, sitting on the, uh, from a no doubt considerable sense, um, on the, the Digital Markets and Competition uh, Bill Committee. Um, and so there's, as you can imagine, there's quite a lot of lobbying going on around about that, requests for meetings, briefings, you know, flying in. And, but fundamentally, you know, we're, whatever political party you're in, I think this, this advice would hold. Um, all of us who get elected are there for the right reasons. We all want the same sorts of broad headings. You know, we want a, a prosperous economy. We want good public services. We want our country to be the best it can be. We have different views about how we get there and what some of that might look like. But in terms of the broad headings, you know, we're, we, we kind of want the same things and we're and we're, we're there for the right reasons to try and to try and, and do that. So having that open, honest dialogue and and you know if there is something that is emerging as an issue, you know, pick up the phone. You know, no, nobody wants to be as a in politics to be putting themselves out on a limb. And uh, I think that you know there are you know you know the, the, if if it turns into you know megaphones across a, a divide, uh, that doesn't help business. It certainly doesn't enhance politics. So having that appreciation of where people are coming from and having an appreciation of what is possible and keeping things in the realms of the, the practical, I think, are are that, that's that's certainly the space in which I like to operate. You know, I can have my bigger picture, I can have my big objectives. I know I can't get to necessarily in one or even two and maybe even three moves. But in terms of uh, certainly the way I tried to go about dealing with Brexit in the Northern Ireland brief was to try and be pragmatic about trying to make sure that there are as few trade barriers as possible, uh, not just between Northern Ireland and Scotland, but also between, by extension, all parts of the UK and the European Union. So um, keeping it, trying to be pragmatic, I think, is all, and having that kind of baseline of, of what is achievable, I think, is good. But fundamentally, it's relationships, dialogue, trust, and accepting that sometimes there will be honest disagreement um, for very good reasons. And that just because you end up in opposite sides of, of a particular argument doesn't mean you'll always be in opposite sides of all arguments. And that the, the fact that that might happen from time to time, it's often, you know, it's come, don't ever question the sincerity. No side should question the sincerity of, of the others. Nobody should ever personalise anything because uh, these are relationships that are long-term and ongoing <coughs> or have to be. And, uh, you know, the, the fact that you've had a disagreement that could get quite spicy about one issue one weekend, it could well be that, the you know, the following week you're on exactly the same page about something. So, again, it's about making sure 
which I think is sound advice in any walk of life, that the, the argument is separated from the individual making it or the organisation making it, and that we're always going in with the best of intentions, whichever, you know, whether it's whichever side of the debate it is. And as I say, just having that, uh, establishing that trust and having that uh, open dialogue and the, 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 the willingness to be able to um, either just drop an email or pick up the phone and make that appointment. Um, I'm sure lots of your members are passing through London on a pretty regular basis. So, but, you know, we're always happy to, to meet, um, you know, whether it's in in London, in some ways, that's easiest during the week, or you know, at the start or the end of the week in, in Edinburgh, it's possible to, you know, make arrangements to, to to hold meetings in. And I think that just making sure that there is that flow of information and that respectful relationship uh, in in both directions, I think, is is, is key to most things succeeding. And um, you know, I'd, I'd like to think we've got a pretty good relationship uh from my party with 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 business you know we've always been able to have that kind of honest dialogue we're not always going to get everything right we're not always going to agree with everything that comes from business but nevertheless it's important that uh, everyone understands where where they're coming from and uh, i would like to think that as the outcome of that you end up with hopefully better legislation and uh, a more positive environment for, for what's to come in the future Richard Thompson, it has been a pleasure to chat with you today. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. We hope that you have enjoyed this Director's Briefing podcast. Please do subscribe to our channel to ensure that you are kept up to date on our future podcasts. You can find more information about our work on our website at iod.com forward slash news and on our LinkedIn and Twitter profiles. You can also contact us directly via policy-unit at iod.com.